If you would, take your Bibles this morning. We're going to turn open to the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 9. If you're using a pew Bible there, it's on page 573 of the pew Bible. Let's do a little Advent series here uh, in the morning and the evening. Morning, we're going to look at these names of Christ here in Isaiah 9. Or titles, and then this evening, in the evening, we'll look at some of the other titles or names of Christ that are prophesied about Him or spoken of Him uh, for our Advent series leading up to Christmas. If you would, let's go before the Lord in prayer here together before we open Isaiah 9 together. Our Father, we pray that you would speak to us this morning, that in only the way that you can, that you would thunder in each individual mind, in each individual heart, in each individual soul that is in this room, even those that are online. God who is truly omnipotent, all-powerful, a God who is truly omnipresent in all places you alone can minister in such a way. And we cry out to you in prayer and ask you to minister in that way this morning. Teach us truths about our Savior. Things surely that we have known before, some of us will hear for the first time, but for all of us, may it be life to us this morning. And may you be glorified. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen. Isaiah chapter 9, and we're going to read verses 6 and 7 together this morning. This is the holy, inerrant, sufficient Word of God. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of His government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And though the grass withers and the flower fades, the Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, you know Isaiah 9. Most of you do. It's a very familiar passage to you. It is something that we sing over and over in different songs Especially in the Christmas season, you hear it in Handel's Messiah. It is something that is on Christmas cards that go out all over the place. Uh, it is a very popular Christmas prophecy, Isaiah 9, and rightfully so. It is one of the more important that speaks about uh, the Savior that would come into the world. It's interesting, though, to think about this, is that this prophecy by Isaiah here in Isaiah chapter 9 was uttered 700 years before 
the birth of Christ. And so you have this prophecy that will come to fruition and will be realized fully 700 years after it's spoken, and it will be realized in full. It is truly a stroke of our Lord and of His all-powerful control over all things and His decreeing of all things that occur. What I want to do is set a little context for you this morning as we think about this prophecy here in Isaiah 9. First, I want you to see that Isaiah is prophesying in the midst of darkness. He's prophesying in the midst of darkness. It is darkness that is there, that is in the land. It is also darkness that he is going to prophesy is going to descend even more so upon the land as he speaks to the Israelites there. There is evil that is within the nation and within the land, and he's also telling them in the book of Isaiah in these multiple prophecies that there is evil that is descending upon the nation from without, both evil within and evil without. Not sure if you saw it this week, but there was a famous broadcaster, one of probably the most famous here in America over the last couple of decades. He was uh, signing off for the last time on one of the networks that he has been a broadcaster on, and he took his last three minutes as a sign-off to to give a really provocative kind of ending to his career on this network and maybe on, on cable television. And in that sign-off, he expressed worry that he had, worry for our country, worry as he looks at the landscape today. And his worry centered upon the politicians that we have today and what he sees in these politicians and of these politicians, a man that has spent his life covering them. And he said this about them. He said, they've, quote, decided to burn it all down with us inside, speaking of our country. And he was issuing it as a warning and telling people in the country that they need to be aware of this and need to push back against this. Now, whether you agree with him or not, that's besides the point. The point is, is that when he looks out at this country, which he has been a broadcaster in for decades, and now as an older gentleman is looking at it, he is concerned because he sees or he perceives what he believes is darkness that has descended upon the land and that has gripped this country that he says that he loves. When the people of Israel look around at the nation that they are in, in this day that Isaiah is prophesying in, they see darkness everywhere. They see it within and they see it without. Frankly, the nation that Isaiah is prophesying to, it looks like a dumpster fire compared to the United States. There is wickedness everywhere. They were the nation of God. They were the covenant people of God, and they have abandoned that God. They have given in to every type of idolatry and false worship. There is no morality in the land. They are even at the point where they are sacrificing their children. Wickedness everywhere. Even worse than that, maybe in the Israelites' eyes, is what Isaiah tells them is on the horizon. 
And he lets them know that darkness is also on their doorstep and that a nation is coming to conquer them. And they're living in the light of that looming shadow as it descends upon their land. It's the wicked nation of Assyria. You know this nation. Remember Jonah was sent by the Lord to go and to prophesy to one of the chief cities of that nation, the city of Nineveh. And as he is commissioned by God to go to Nineveh to preach repentance to that city and tell them of the judgment of God that's going to come upon that city. You remember he runs away and he doesn't want to go to Nineveh. And he doesn't want to go to Nineveh not because he's scared of the Assyrians, but he doesn't want to go to Nineveh because he doesn't want them to repent. He doesn't want them to receive the mercy of God. And why doesn't he want them to receive the mercy of God? Because they are so incredibly wicked. He wants them judged all the way down to the last man, woman, and child. The Assyrian nation will be hated in the Mediterranean world. And it will be hated because it is ruthless. They will conquer nation after nation. And as they conquer nations, they will take the people that they have conquered and they will take them away from their homelands and they will scatter them throughout their empire so that they are no longer a people group. And then they will take their own people and they will settle them in the land. They will do this to Israel. They were renowned throughout the ancient world for when they captured enemy soldiers, they would often skin them alive just to teach future soldiers not to fight against them. They're wicked. They're beyond wicked. They're evil. There's darkness. Isaiah is saying there is darkness within. There is darkness without. He's prophesying in the midst of darkness. But he doesn't just prophesy darkness in this book. He also prophesies, secondly, hope. Now, what hope could he offer? What hope could he offer a nation that is trapped in darkness and in wickedness and you see this looming darkness that is outside of its borders? What hope does he have to offer this nation? Maybe God would return strength for strength. Maybe he would bring wickedness and judgment upon these people that are bringing such harsh judgment upon the Israelites. Maybe that's the great hope that Isaiah is going to offer to them. No, that's not what he offers them. The answer that God gives to them is not what you and I would expect or what the Israelites would have expected. He tells them that their deliverance will be a baby who is born. A baby. He's already told them this in Isaiah chapter 7. He is there prophesying and there will say that there will be this baby that is born. And now in Isaiah 9 when he's offering hope again, he will say that a baby is going to be born. There's one commentator that made the statement that he said, it seems like every time that Isaiah is offering hope to the Israelite people, there is a baby's face that's peeking around the corner. And so it is. What will this child be? Well, he will be a warrior king, and he will be a warrior king who ushers in a kingdom, as we saw when we went through the Gospel of Matthew. Verse 6 of this 
chapter, Isaiah says, the government shall be upon his shoulder. Verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The answer of God to all of this darkness, to all of this wickedness, to all of this despair, to all of this anguish, all of this evil, His answer is a baby. A baby's going to be born. What makes this baby so unique? Well, as Paul will tell us in 1 Corinthians, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. I want you to see what Isaiah says about this child He points us to two things in particular about this child and why this child is so very unique and why this child is the answer for the darkness and the despair that they're facing. First, he emphasizes the true humanity of this child. He says that this child, this child that he is prophesying, will come into the world in the most human-like way to come into the world. He'll be born. He's going to be conceived in a womb, in his mother's womb. He's going to go from that embryo, and he's going to mature over hours and days and weeks and months. And then as he matures and as she goes through labor pains, he will be born into this world, and he will be connected to his mother with an umbilical cord, just like every other child that was born into this world. And just like every other child that was born into this world, he will take his first breath in this world. What Isaiah is pressing home to you and I in the very beginning is he's saying, look, this is one who is going to be born. That is, he is fully human. He will have a human mind, and he will have a human heart, and he will have human affections, and he will have human dreams, and he will have a human vision, and he will have human arms and hands and little fingers and little toes. He will be born into this world having to learn to hold his head up and having to crawl and learn to walk and learn to talk. He's born just like every other human has been born. He's fully human. But second, Isaiah wants us to know that though he is man, he's wholly different from every other man that has been born. He's unique. He tells us that, and it was so important that he established his humanity, his full humanity, because what he's going to tell us now. He gives us four titles in the text of Jesus. We're going to cover one in each of the sermons as we go forward over the next weeks, and including Christmas Eve. And so we'll cover these four titles. He says that He is Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then what we want to cover this morning, He says that He is Wonderful Counselor. Four titles. Now, I know that in some of your Bibles, especially if you have a King James Version this morning, you have five titles. And those of you that are 
music majors like John Anderson, you go, oh, no, 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 there are five. I've sung Handel's Messiah many times. There are five. No, there are four. I think there's four. You'll see in like the KJV or some of your New King James versions of some of you are reading that, there will be a comma between Wonderful and Counselor. And they see them as separate titles. And so you have five titles. When we sing the Handel's Messiah, we sing that there are five titles. Okay. But I think what's more right in the text is that there are four titles here. Because if you'll note, each of the titles that Jesus is given here, they have some kind of modifier. There's some kind of adjective that's attached to it. He is mighty God. He is everlasting Father. He is Prince of Peace. And so he is wonderful Counselor. But did you notice that though there are four titles, they're one name? He said, and his name shall be called, and then he gives these four titles. The name is singular. And why is the name singular? Because what Isaiah is trying to press home to you and I is that all of these titles, they can't be distinguished from one another in that they are separate, that you could have one apart from the other. No, they're all interconnected and they're all interdependent. That is, that if he is wonderful counselor, what does that really matter if he knows all things and has all strategy for all things? If he doesn't have the might and the power of God, no. He also is mighty God and so he's able to enact what he knows. But what's it matter if he knows and he can act what he knows if he doesn't actually give it to anyone? No, he gives it. He's everlasting father. But what's the matter if he knows and he, act, he has the power to act and he acts, but he doesn't actually give anything that's of any good? No, he gives. He's the Prince of Peace. And so they all go together, and we're going to look at that over the weeks ahead. You can't take one out and say, oh, I like Jesus as wonderful counselor, but not mighty God. No, you can't do that. They fit together. One name, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He begins here with everlasting or with wonderful counselor. And that's what we're going to focus on this morning. All of these titles are relaying the second thing that Isaiah wants us to know about this child that is born. It's not only that this child is fully man. It's true that he is like every single man, woman, and child that has been born into this world. Born just like them having the same characteristics of manhood, of humankind as them. But what Isaiah is now pointing out to us is that he is wholly unique. Let's consider a wonderful counselor together. It could be that phrase, wonderful counselor, is literally the word wonder counselor. So it says wonder counselor. It could be that it's a counselor that dispenses wonder, or it could be that it's a counselor that's just marked by wonder. I don't think it really matters one way or the other, because for either one to be true, both have to be true. So I think what we have in most of our English Bibles captures it the best. He is wonderful counselor. Now that word wonder, it's used throughout the Old Testament. And it's used throughout the Old Testament to speak of God. So for instance, in Exodus 3, verse 20, it says, God says this, So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that I will let you go. 
When the nation emerges out of Egypt, when they cross through the waters, in Exodus 15, Moses on the heels of that will erupt in song. And as he erupts in song, he sings this, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? In Psalm 78, that famous psalm of Asaph where he is describing that we are to pass on what we know to the generation that follows us. What is it that you and I are to pass on to our children? What is it that we want our children to know? Well, in part, he says this, the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. The psalmist in Psalm 136, as he's putting all of this together, and as he's thinking about all of this, he comes to this conclusion. He says we should give thanks to God, quote, for He alone does great wonders. Same word. Same word. He alone does great wonders. Who is this that is to be born into the world? It is the wonder counselor, the wonderful counselor. Who is it? It's God. Isaiah is saying that as great as the acts of God were and the miracles He performed, so equally wondrous is the counsel of this child to be born. Because this child is not only fully man, He is fully God. He knows what is to be done. He's wonderful counselor. He needs no strategist. He needs no advice. He needs nobody in his ear. He's wonderful counselor who has all wisdom and he has all knowledge. Supernatural counsel. Just as he works supernaturally, does wondrous, so he has supernatural wisdom and knowledge because he's God. He's counselor. He's not a therapist. I want to be clear about that. That's where our minds often go. We hear counselor, therapist. No, he's not your therapist. He's your wonderful counselor. Think about uh, counselors in the Old Testament scriptures. Joseph would have been a counselor. Remember, Joseph was the counselor of Pharaoh. What was he to Pharaoh? He was the one that spoke into Pharaoh's ears and provided strategy and he provided help and he provided knowledge and he provided wisdom for Pharaoh. But you see, what Isaiah is saying is that this one, this one to be born, he's wonderful counselor. He has no need for a counselor. Why? Because he has all wisdom. As Paul will say of Jesus in Romans 11, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? And they're all rhetorical questions. The answer is no one. No one can be his counselor. There are different people that I go to for counsel. Uh, the two chief people I go to for counsel in my life are my wife and my mom. 
Uh, they both are wise. They both love me. And so I know they're going to be honest. They're going to try and be helpful to me. There are others that I go to for counsel. I have friends in the ministry that I often go to counsel to. I have elders here in the church that are constantly avenues of counsel to me. There are staff members here that I constantly go to for counsel. There are different church members here that I go to for counsel. But you see, there's a problem with all of them. And that is that the very best of men at are simply men at their very best. They are all a sinner whose judgment cannot be relied upon completely because their judgment is not completely reliable. But here, Isaiah says, is a wonderful counselor. Why is his counsel so great? Because he is not only man, but God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, He is the source of your life, Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom. He made Him our wisdom. Now I want you to think with me about how much higher Christ's thoughts are than our thoughts. And when we think about Him being wonderful counselor, what that actually means. What does it mean that, that He... He has all knowledge, that He has all wisdom, that is distinctly different from what you and I can give to one another or what you and I have in and of ourselves. When you and I know something, when we know something, we know it because we've apprehended it in some way. That is, that we see something or we feel something, or we taste something. There's something with our senses that is there. It exists. And so, with our senses, we apprehend the thing. And as we apprehend the thing, then we begin to have knowledge of the thing. That something exists. We apprehend it, and then it exists in our minds. And we have knowledge of it. For us, a thing, if you take like this pulpit, for example, you see it this morning, and as you see it, then you know it. I am feeling it, and I'm seeing it, and so I know it. It exists, apprehend, knowledge. However, God understands all things as the creator of all things. All things exist, if we can say it this way, they exist in the mind of God first before they exist in reality. We first apprehend the thing, and then when we apprehend the thing, we gain knowledge of the thing. Thing, then idea. But in God, it's the idea, and then it's the thing. As one theologian put it, in man, an idea is first impressed, and afterwards expressed in things. But in God, an idea only expresses and is not impressed since it does not come from any other source. It comes from Him. And so when you and I talk about knowing something, we talk about knowing about something. But you see, God doesn't just know about all things. He knows all things in and of Himself. As he will say later in Isaiah, my thoughts are 
above your thoughts and my ways above your ways. When you and I talk about knowledge and wisdom and counsel that we have, it's almost a category distinction to begin to talk about God's knowledge and wisdom and counsel. It's on a different level. An old theologian, Van Maastricht, spoke of God's intellect or knowing His wisdom as different from ours and that it's perfected in ways that yours and mine are not. He said in these ways, it's independent, it's simple, it's immutable, it's eternal, and it's infinite. So let me walk through those real quick. His wisdom is independent. It's independent because He knows all things, not from another source, but from Himself. It's independent wisdom, knowledge, counsel. His wisdom is also simple. That is, He knows all things Himself in one simple glance. There's no composition in His knowledge. There's no taking different parts of different things and therefore putting those things together and therefore defining or finding a new thing. No, He sees all things in all places at all time in one simple glance. No composite knowledge. Simple. His knowledge or wisdom is immutable. He does not understand one thing differently than he understands another thing. Nor does he understand more before or more later. Everything, everything is laid before his eyes for all of eternity. His wisdom is eternal. He neither begins nor ceases to understand because he doesn't gain his understanding from the thing itself. That is, the thing doesn't ex need to exist for him to apprehend it and then understand it like we do. No, he knows all things eternally before they even exist. And finally, his knowledge and wisdom and counsel is infinite. He knows all things. He knows all permeations of all things without any error without any limit, without any ignorance. As Job will say in Job 11, His wisdom is higher than the heavens, longer than the earth, broader than the sea. That's what this child possesses. He's unlike any that have been born. His wonderful counselor. What he knows and what he understands and what he strategizes just is. And I wonder if you caught it. This beautiful child to be born, Isaiah says, is born for us. He's born for us. A world in darkness. And this is the great promise in the midst of darkness. This Advent, Christmas season, as you and I enter into it, it should be things like this that are just screaming out to us. 
You see, what it screams out to us is that all the darkness, all the depression, all the discouragement, all the distress, all the destruction from tornadoes, all the disease, all of the death, all of it has an expiration date. Because he was born into this world, this warrior king. And this warrior king, when he comes into the world, he brings a kingdom with him. And we're just looking for that kingdom that day when it shall all be consummated and all of these things shall be laid to waste. As wonderful counselor, he didn't come in with a plan B. His plan A is accomplished. He knows all things. He has all wisdom. When he launches a strategy, it's actually accomplished. It's done. No matter the problem, no matter the darkness, no matter the question, what Isaiah is saying is he's the hope. He's the hope. He's the way, the truth, and the life. But there are so many problems in the world. Yes. So let's keep preaching Christ. But there are so many things, so many trials in my life. Yes. So keep seeking Christ. There are so many things that I don't understand that I want to understand how this goes together and that goes together. And why is it that he would purpose this and do this and allow this to happen? Okay, let's first understand Christ. You see, he's the great hope. All of these things fall into place when you and I begin to get our grasp of Christ. In the greatest darkness these Israelites face, they probably, because as Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately sick as they are clouded in their own minds and clouded in their own hearts. When Isaiah is prophesying, I have no doubt that when they are listening to this prophet of God, that they look at what he's speaking about and the great darkness that they see is the darkness that's encroaching upon the land of Israel. And they think this is the worst possible darkness that Assyria is getting ready to conquer us and what they are going to do to us and to our land and to our children and to our people. And I think what Isaiah would say, and surely what God would say, is that no, there was a, great, a greater darkness than that. It was the darkness that clouded their minds and clouded their hearts and clouded their lives. It was sin. And it was all the fruit of that sin that now stained their common lives together that would lead to death and that would lead to their eternal damnation. They're worried about this Assyrian army that's coming and going to take away their physical lives. And Isaiah is reminding them, look, there is an eternal life at stake here. You think that they can flay your flesh? Well, there is one who can torment you in the fires of hell for all of eternity. And he gives them this great hope. Here's the hope, a child born. 
And now this is what I want you and I to think about. All these things that we get so focused on, and, and we don't dismiss them. There are a severe, real trials that so many of us are going through in this room. Some of you, I don't know how you continue to wake up in the morning apart from Christ. It's severe. And yet here is what I want us to think about. If He lays to rest our greatest foes, sin, Satan, hell, then why would we ever think that He's not going to lay to rest all of our foes? These things that we see as shadows that really are just shadows of darkness compared to the great darkness that descends upon an eternal soul. Why would we ever think that He wouldn't dissipate and spread those clouds and give relief there if He gives relief from this which is eternal? No, Christ is the great hope for all things. For all things. So do you know Christ as your wonderful counselor? Do you trust Him as your wonderful counselor? Do you believe that He has all knowledge and all wisdom and that His strategy and counsel is right for your life? Do you believe that? This is how Paul, right, can say that he is content in all circumstances. Oh, Paul, how can you be content in all circumstances? Whether I face plenty or want, whether I'm rich or poor, how, 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 how Paul? Paul, you haven't had to live what I've had to live. Oh, maybe, but maybe not. But he can be content even if he had to live the life that you have to live. Why? Because he has Christ. And in Christ there is all hope, and there is all peace, and there is all knowledge, and there is all wisdom, and there is all righteousness, and there is all joy. Remember I preached on John 3.16 last week, and truly there really is no greater truth and no greater comfort to the soul than the truth that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Everything banks upon that. So where do you turn in your darkness? Paul said, hidden in Him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Where do you turn in your darkness? Have you found wisdom in Him? That is my great prayer and hope for every single one of you in this room is that you have found your great hope in Christ beyond anything else. Politicians can't do this for you. Drugs, whether illicit or over-the-counter, can't do this for you. Sex, alcohol can't do this for you. The right job can't do this for you. Just that next level of income can't do this for you. The world finally waking up and realizing that it's going to hell in a handbasket can't do this for you. Christ alone does this for you. And when you have Christ, you have all things. And then things begin to fall into place. 
doesn't make life easy. It makes it bearable, makes it hope-filled, makes it peace-filled. Where do you turn in your darkness? Have you found your wisdom in Him? If you have, do you continue to find your wisdom in Christ? I ask this because I read different studies of late. Barna came out with a study just about a year ago where he was comparing the numbers in 2020 to 1993, and he said that 37% less Americans are attending church weekly than they were in 1993. There's another study that I saw that said that the average Christian was attending three out of four services a Sunday, morning services a Sunday, uh, a month, Three out of four weeks a month. Let me say it again. Three or four weeks out of a month. And now the average person that claims to be a Christian church member, church attendee, attends morning services once a month. If you found Christ to be your wisdom and you believe that He has all knowledge and all wisdom and that He provides right counsel, then you understand the importance of this. And you understand the importance of this preached because that's how he communicates to his people. And if you understand that he speaks through the preached word, then you put yourself as much as you can underneath that preached word. Sunday morning is not a, "Ah, maybe this Sunday when we go to bed Saturday night. It is no hell and high water Sunday we go to church. Because we want to hear We want to hear from this wonderful counselor. And maybe we even dare to come back on Sunday evening because we so desperately need the voice of this wonderful counselor in our ears. Because there are so many voices out there that are vying for your attention, and this is the one who knows all things. This is the one who has a word for you. You need his wisdom. You need His knowledge. I was telling the first service, I think if um, Warren Buffett had called me years ago and said, uh, Jason, I want to help you with investments, uh, and I'm going to make sure that you have the right advice, and I'm going to call you each week, and uh, I'd pick up that phone call. If Bill Gates or... Wozniak or Steve Jobs at some point in my life said, Jason, I want to be your tech support for the rest of your life. I love John Wood. But John, I'm not answering his phone calls anymore. I'm calling them. Geek squad at Best Buy no longer. If one who has all wisdom and all knowledge. Pat Quinn, God bless him. He is a wonderful gift to our church and to all of us. You need more than Pat Quinn. You need the wonderful counselor. And here's what he does. He offers himself to you. He was born for us. For us. This one who is fully God, fully man. You're a wonderful counselor. Let's pray.
Our Father, we're thankful for the great gift of your Son. Fully God, fully man, in one person. We're thankful that he is wonderful counselor, given for us all knowledge, all wisdom. And that what he plans and what he decrees is accomplished. We're thankful that we have been united to you and your son even this morning and where that is not true, where we're seeking after wisdom and knowledge in other places. We pray that you would return us or maybe turn us for the first time to your dear son. And that we would find him to be the great counselor to our souls the chief strategist for our lives, the great fountain of knowledge and wisdom. We seek Him in prayer day after day and long to hear Him speak to us through the preached Word that we might more readily live for Your glory and Your praise, that the light might shine in the darkness in our own lives for Your glory and praise. In Christ's name, amen.